Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Amos and Daniel, the center of the gospel and the fringe of culture. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 17, 2016. Three months ago, back on April 30th, the church lost a modern-day prophet when Father Daniel Berrigan died at the age of 94. His niece Frida was with him when he died and observed that Berrigan owned almost nothing. He still wore the same black shirt that he had at her wedding 15 years earlier. Deeds, not things, made Father Berrigan one of the best-known Roman Catholic priests of the 20th century, observed Jim Dwyer, in his own reflection in the New York Times. Berrigan departed indifferently penniless from a world that often seems to keep score in gilded ink. Berrigan was a Jesuit priest, poet, playwright, author of 50 books, university professor, and peace activist. He spent a long life celebrating the good news of Jesus rather than the bad news of Caesar. I liken Daniel Berrigan to Amos in this week's reading. Both were troublers of the conscience who protested national delusions. Both epitomized how in the Bible prophecy is more about foretelling God's word to society than about foretelling the future. Amos wrote some 2,800 years ago, but he reads like today's newspaper. He lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who forged a political dynasty characterized by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, and unprecedented national prosperity. The citizens of his day took pride in their religiosity. Their history is God's favored people, their military conquests, their economic affluence, and their political security. Amos preached from the unpatriotic fringe. He was blue-collar rather than blue-blooded. In fact, he was a farmer from Little Tekoa, about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem and five miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elites despised Amos as a redneck. He was also an unwelcome outsider. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, God called him to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Amos delivered a withering cultural critique. He describes how the rich trampled the poor. He says the affluent flaunted their expensive lotions, elaborate music, and vacation homes with beds of inlaid ivory. Fathers and sons abused the same temple prostitute. Corrupt judges sold justice to the highest bidder. Predatory lenders exploited vulnerable families. And then religious leaders pronounced God's blessing on it all. With Israel at the peak of its power, Amos preached a counterintuitive and culturally subversive message. To the country's disbelief, he said that Israel was no different than the pagan nations with their war crimes. Before God, 
they were equals. He spoke to everyone, but especially to the nation's leaders, priests, judges, financiers, and state bureaucrats, what he calls in chapter 6, verse 1, the notable men of the foremost nation. In this week's reading, Amos compared Israel to a basket of summer fruit that was not just ripe, but almost rotten. I doubt that many people listen to Amos. Amaziah the priest defended Jeroboam the king and ran Amos out of town. It's a classic example of the religious legitimation of the cultural status quo. But Amos persevered. He announced the end of Israel's empire, an end that came swiftly. In 725 BC, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser occupied Israel for three years, crushed the opposition holdouts, and then deported its population, all told in 2 Kings chapter 17. In 25 short years, Israel went from being a regional power under Jeroboam to a failed state under Shalmaneser. In our own day, amidst the church's checkered history in relationship to power, politics, privilege, and wealth, Daniel Berrigan was a modern-day Amos. In 1968, he and eight other activists stole 378 draft files of men who were about to be sent to Vietnam, dumped them into two garbage cans, poured homemade napalm on them, and burned them in the parking lot of the Catonsville, Maryland draft board. As the photographers clicked away, Berrigan spoke. Apologies, good friends, for the fracture of good order, the burning of paper instead of children. Our hearts give us no rest for thinking of the land of burning children. In 1980, he trespassed into General Electric's nuclear missile plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, poured blood on some warhead nose combs, then hammered away, enacting symbolically the prophecy of Isaiah 2-4 about beating weapons of war into plowshares of peace. For these and similar activities, he and his brother Philip spent time on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, not to mention significant time in prison. Berrigan bore prophetic witness on a broad range of issues. Racism, he marched in Selma, nuclear arms, founding the Plowshares Movement, the death penalty, and most famously, of course, Vietnam. He also opposed what he called, quote-unquote, the abortion mills. In her memoir, Things Seen and Unseen, Nora Gallagher recalls meeting Berrigan in the spring of 1986. When she asked how many times he had been jailed for the gospel, he responded, not enough. For his 80th birthday, he remarked, the day after I'm embalmed, that's when I'll give up. But being a prophet isn't easy. Jim O'Grady once asked Berrigan if it was tiring to constantly work on the fringes, on the fringes of the Catholic Church, 
of American politics, of polite discourse. He referred O'Grady to his old friend Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker, a volunteer community devoted to pacifism and serving the poor. Berrigan said, she always thought of herself and her work as residing at the center of the Gospels. It was up to everyone else to move toward her. Berrigan was also a realist. I was interested to read in his May the 2nd obituary by Daniel Lewis about his deep discouragements. Daniel Lewis writes, While Berrigan was known for his wry wit, there was a darkness in much of what he wrote and said, the burden of which was that one had to keep trying to do the right thing, regardless of the near certainty that it would make no difference. In the withering of the pacifist movement and the country's general support for the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, Berrigan saw proof that it was folly to expect lasting results. This is the worst time of my life, Berrigan said in an interview with The Nation in 2008. I've never had such meager expectations of the system. What made it bearable, he wrote elsewhere, was a disciplined, implicitly difficult belief in God as the key to sanity and survival. Realism, futility, and even discouragement were Berrigan's penultimate words rather than his final word. In his book, No Gods But One, a chapter and verse study of Deuteronomy, he wrote, nor is the fall the final judgment, as though we were bereft of all hope. No, there has occurred an intervention of God for healing and reconciliation, an intervention named Jesus. And at the end of that book, he calls us to, quote, behave as though the truth were true. Similarly, in his meditation on First and Second Kings, a book called The Kings and Their Gods, he leaves us with this last word on the final page of the book. One must urge to his own soul first a firm rebutting midrash, bring Christ to bear, read the gospel closely, obediently, welcome no enticements, no other claim on conscience, Mourn the preachers and priests whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel. Enter the maelstrom, the wilderness. Flee the claim that would possess your soul. Earn the blessing. Pay up. Blessed and lonely and powerless and intent on the master. And if must be, despised, scorned, locked up. Blessed are the makers of peace. Daniel Berrigan as a modern-day Amos. For books this week, I review a new title by Bill Bryson. The title, The Road to Little Dribbling, Adventures of an American in Britain. New York, Doubleday, 215 pages 
long, uh, 380 pages long. Bill Bryson fell in love with Britain over 40 years ago. He found his wife there. He became a citizen and has lived most of his adult life there. Twenty years ago, he wrote a best-selling travelogue about his adopted home that also became a television series, the title Notes from a Small Island. Gradually, it dawned on me, he writes in retrospect in this new book, that I had found a country that was wholly strange to me and yet somehow marvelous. It's a feeling that has never left me. And Great Britain has reciprocated. In 2006, Bryson was awarded an honorary OBE for his contribution to literature. And in 2013, he became the first non-Briton to be elected an honorary fellow of the Royal Society. In this newest travel narrative, Bryson makes a nostalgic trip around the entire country, from the south coast to Cape Wrath on the north coast of Scotland, to places both new and old. What has changed? What has remained the same? As with his nearly 20 other books, this one is a familiar mix of history, geography, and curmudgeonly humor. Little Dribbling spent a time on some bestseller lists and has received enthusiastic reviews on both sides of the Atlantic. Bryson takes us to Stonehenge and the grave of Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle. He explains how Mount Everest got its name. He complains about the rail system and urban planners. He makes a geographic connection with a speech by Churchill. We join him for trips to museums that are both famous and obscure. Bryson is well-informed and funny, but I thought this book would have been much better if a lot shorter. It felt repetitive. Every chapter had a witty remark about his cup of tea or pint of beer. How the shopkeepers were. How surly the shopkeepers were. The impending collapse of civilization. Comparisons to growing up in Des Moines and various faux insults. This is a tried and true formula for Bryson, but also a tired one. Nonetheless, you will have lots of fun reading this book, so I heartily recommend it for your next trip to the beach or your next long plane ride. Once again, the, a new memoir, a new travelogue by Bill Bryson. It's called The Road to Little Dribbling, Adventures of an American in Britain, 2015. For movies this week, we go to the country of Saudi Arabia. The title of the film, Saudi Arabia Uncovered, 2016. This one-hour documentary by PBS Frontline uncovers the perfect storm of problems that's emerging in the petro-kingdom of Saudi Arabia by going undercover. Thanks to some very brave dissidents and activists like the women, videographers, and bloggers featured in the film, 
We have an extensive secret videos that have been smuggled to the outside world. Disturbing images of public lashings and beheadings. Vice squads at the upscale shopping malls. Deplorable prisons. And beggars panhandling on the streets of Riyadh. It's a culture rife with fear, secrecy, and repression, but also broad-ranging political ferment. The Sunni monarchy faces regional instability with a resurgent Shiite Iran, not to mention wars in Yemen and Syria. Bankruptcy looms due to plummeting oil prices. Minority Shiites and extreme Sunni Wahhabis inject religious fundamentalisms into the mix. The narr this narrative in the film also features experts like a CIA analyst, a British ambassador, and the Saudi foreign minister. These are troubling times for the U.S.'s Middle East ally. I watched this film for free on the Frontline website. For another cinematic take on Saudi Arabia, see my review of the film at Journey with Jesus of the movie Wajda from 2013, which was written and directed by Haifa al-Mansur. It's the first feature-length film by a Saudi woman and tackles gender roles head-on. This week's movie, Saudi Arabia Uncovered, 2016. It's a one-hour documentary by PBS Frontline. Finally, for poetry this week, one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately. She's actually been a guest essay a couple of times for Journey with Jesus. This poem is called Called to Become. It's from her book of poetry, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. You were called to become a perfect creation. No one is called to become who you were called to be. It does not matter how short or tall or thick-set or slow you may be. It does not matter whether you sparkle with life or as silent as a still pool. Whether you sing your song aloud or weep alone in darkness. It does not matter whether you feel loved and admired or unloved and alone. For you are called to become a perfect creation. No one's shadow should cloud your becoming. No one's light should dispel your spark. For the, for the Lord delights in you, jealously looks upon you and encourages you with gentle joy, every movement of the Spirit within you. Unique and loved you stand, beautiful or stunted in your growth, but never without hope in life. For you were called to become a perfect creation. This becoming may be gentle or harsh, subtle or violent, but it never ceases never pauses or hesitates, only is creative force calling you, calling you to become a perfect creation. 
The poet is Edwina Gatelade. The name of the poem, <clears throat> Called to Become. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 17th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.